Hey there, welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name's Jason Barnes, and today we're joined by rhinologist and skull-based surgeon, Dr. Garrett Choby, and we'll be discussing sinonasal malignancy. Dr. Choby, thanks again so much for being here. It's my pleasure. So just to start, I'll say that we do already have an episode on esthesioneuroblastoma, so we won't dive into that pathology too much. And in general, we'll talk about the workup and management of sinonasal malignancies with a focus on a few specific pathologies. And just remember that this is a heterogeneous group of tumors that can't necessarily be lumped into one category. Tumor biology and prognosis can be different, but we'll do our best to sum it all up and hit the high points. So Dr. Choby, when you see someone with sinonasal malignancy, how are they typically presenting to your clinic? So most commonly, these patients present with a fairly late diagnosis. Many of the symptoms may not develop until the tumor is quite advanced, at least locally. So they may not present until, until then. Most commonly, patients have things like nasal obstruction and epistaxis, although the exact symptoms they have really depends on the tumor location and what it involves. For instance, if it's primarily a tumor that arose in the ethmoid cavity and invades the orbit, their most uh, common symptoms perhaps may be proptosis or vision changes. Uh, and then, of course, something has grown intracranially or is high in the nasal vault. Maybe they present with anosmia. As I mentioned earlier, these are typically late presentations and many have advanced uh, sort of symptoms. In some cases, they've developed craneuropathies, things like uh, hypesthesia and V2 distribution. Uh, again, proptosis or oral symptoms may be common as well, and this may signify there's been extension more laterally in infotemporal fossa or involvement of the pterygoid uh, musculature. And lastly, if, if a patient has a tumor that's very posterior, perhaps in the, in the sphenoid or the nasopharynx, things like otologic symptoms, including uh, eustachian tube dysfunction, may also uh, be common. And occasionally, they're asymptomatic. So about 1 in 10 patients present with this as an incidental finding uh, found in workup for other, other issues. And when you're seeing patients in your clinic who you suspect might have a sinonasal malignancy, what are some of the epidemiology or risk factors that you're thinking about with these patients? From an epidemiologic standpoint, uh, these are fairly nondescript tumors. They happen in men a little more commonly than, than women. And the mean age is in the 60s, although they can present over a wide range of age ranges from uh, pediatric patients the whole way through 80 or 90 years old. In general, there's not a lot of strong risk factor association as opposed to many other head and neck tumors where things like alcohol use or smoking may, may play a big role. However, the classic thing is, is environmental or uh, job-based exposures. And there is certainly an association with wood dust for woodworkers or leatherworking with some sinusal cancers, in particular with adenocarcinoma. There have also been some associations with industrial uh, flames and nickel exposure, but those things are probably less well-recognized. And when you're seeing these patients, what are some of the first questions you ask? What are you trying to tease out when you're seeing them? I'm really interested in the duration of their symptoms. For some patients, they may present late and may have uh, very common symptoms like nasal obstruction. But when they think back about it, they may have you know, noticed they've had some obstruction for maybe months or even a year or so, sort of suggesting the duration of their symptoms. I'm also quite interested in any vision changes or ocular symptoms they have, as well as cranial nerve findings. Uh, there's been some work that has shown that uh, things like hypesthesia are, are negative predictors of long-term outcomes. So I'm really interested in those things when I talk to patients, as well as things like have they had a change in their bite, trismus, uh, and those kind of things. And then lastly, I'll also you know, at least give them a cursory ask about what they do for work and see if there's anything like woodworking as a common hobby or, or as a work exposure. 
And moving into physical exam, uh, you've started to talk about this with some symptoms that people can have, but I feel like a lot of times in rhinology clinic, it's easy to just jump to the scope exam. But in these cases, uh, what are you looking for in physical exam? That's a great question. And, and I, I, will, I will emphasize the importance of a complete head and neck exam for all patients, but especially those who are presenting with a sinonasal tumor. Uh, to start with, something you may overlook on occasion is an ear exam. Uh, if something involved in the eustachian tube or posteriorly in the nose, it may affect that. And you may have an effusion or other things like a retraction of the TM. Then, of course, a close examination of a cranial nerve function, including a uh, cranial nerves V1 through V3 for sensation, as well as a close examination of extraocular motion, as well as a pupillary exam is very important. Always feel the neck for lymphadenopathy, and always a thorough oral cavity exam to make sure that a tumor such as the maxillary sinus may not be extending below into the palate. And then, of course, lastly, is the important scope exam. And this is really important to do with a patient well decongested. You can get a sense for tumor attachments, as well as the relative vascularity of the tumor in its general location. And when you perform scope exam, say you identify a tumor that you're concerned about, do you regularly perform biopsy in clinic? In general, I do like to perform in-clinic biopsies. The caveats to that would be the following. I think it's very important for the patient to have imaging before obtaining a biopsy. Things you would not want to biopsy would be a tumor that is extremely vascular and you worry about controlling bleeding in clinic. The classic one for this is a JNA or a juvenile nasal angiofibroma for which we have an episode uh, dedicated to, which you would certainly not want to biopsy in the clinic. And on occasion, if the patient does not have good imaging, there's a possibility that an encephalocele could present a nasal mass. And of course, it's not, uh, not very awesome to biopsy an encephalocele in clinic and induce a uh, CSF leak. But besides those scenarios, I do find it's very important to have some tissue to properly plan uh, surgery or other interventions uh, prior to going to the operating room when at all possible. And now moving on to pathophysiology, we're going to be talking about a lot of different malignancies. Uh, so I figured we'd jump into the differential diagnosis up front. Uh, what do you find is a good way to initially categorize these or split these, uh, this differential diagnosis up? There are a lot of ways to consider differential diagnosis. And as you mentioned earlier, uh, sinusal malignancies, although they're sort of lumped in a single group, are quite a heterogeneous group of tumors that have many different presentations and potential symptoms and treatments. One way I like to think about these is the tissue of origin. And I think this can really help you to sort of break them down into different categories. The first one is the most common one, and that is epithelial tumors. This includes things like squamous cell carcinoma or its cousin, the inverting papilloma, although benign tumor, it can transition into squamous cell carcinoma. Minor salivary gland tumors, including adenocarcinoma, adenoid cystic, mucoepidermoid carcinoma, uh, and nasopharyngeal carcinomas as well. Sinonasal mucosal melanoma can be considered in this category, although it also could be put in our next category, which is the neuroendocrine tumors. This is a very important uh, tumor group because a lot of tumors that are specific to the nasal cavity occur in this group. This includes things like esthesioneuroblastoma, sinonasal neuroendocrine carcinoma, or SNEC, as well as sinonasal undifferentiated carcinoma, or SNUC. And as I mentioned earlier, mucosal melanoma can also fit into this category. We do see some tumors in the nasal cavity arise from cartilage or bone. These include chondrosarcoma, chondroma, osteosarcoma, and chordoma, which of course is typically chival in origin. You can also have hematologic tumors. These include lymphoma, hemangioparasitoma, plasmacytoma, amongst others. And then lastly, that sort of other category or where everything else fits into, things like sarcoma, uh, JNAs, or metastatic disease can be uh, thought of in that category. 
And when I've learned about some of these pathologies in the past, I know that uh, sometimes people break these down into tiers of severity. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. And this is the way that I was originally trained in thinking about these tumors. And a credit to uh, Dr. Carl Snyderman, who came up with this category of good, bad, and ugly tumors. And this is really a way to think about tumors in regards to their severity and their prognosis. Things that I would typically lump into the quote-unquote good category of sinonasal tumors are things like inverting papillomas. Uh, JNAs can oftentimes be thought of as a, as a well-behaving tumor. Uh, Antroquinal polyps, schwannomas, hemangiomas, osteomas, etc. sort of fit in that more benign good category. The next category would be tumors we consider bad, and many things in the nose are bad, but again, we break these down into sort of the bad and the ugly tumors. Amongst the more intermediate quote-unquote bad tumors are things like adenoid cystic carcinoma, lymphoma, NK T-cell lymphoma, and esthesioneuroblastoma, especially the lower Himes grade or lower CADA stages of that, many squamous cell carcinomas, and other sarcomas. And things that I think about in the ugly category, things that are not well-behaving tumors, are things like cytonasal mucosomelanoma, a high-grade cytonasal neuroendocrine carcinoma, cytonasal undifferentiated carcinomas, and then perhaps higher Himes grade or very high CADA stage uh, esthesioneuroblastomas. Now, there are nuances to this as well. When you think about a tumor like an esthesioneuroblastoma, for lower-grade lesion, the, the five-year overall survival is over 50%, and some studies closer to 70%. However, when you look at higher uh, Himes-grade tumors, that survival uh, quickly drops to about you know, 20 to 35% in most studies. So again, there are nuances to tumor type in regards to prognosis and how to think about them from a differential diagnosis standpoint. Now, after that brief overview, I wanted to dive into the details of a few more uh, specific pathologies. Could you tell us a little bit more about squamous cell carcinoma, mucosal melanoma, and these SNEC and SNUC tumors? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So squamous cell carcinoma is considered the most common malignancy of the sinusal cavity, and it accounts for roughly 40 to 50% of total uh, malignancies within the nose. The maxillary sinus is felt to be the most common site, closely followed by the ethmoid cavity. I will note there are some histologic subtypes of squamous cell carcinoma, which include things like verrucous and papillary, which tend to be a little bit better prognosis, to things like spindle cell and adenosquamous, which tend to have a worse prognosis overall. There is a potential or a thought that is there a role for HPV in some of these tumors? And the short answer is we don't know for sure, although most preliminary evidence does not suggest a strong role for HPV in sinusal squamous cell carcinoma, unlike that of the oropharynx and other sites. There is also an occasion when inverting papillomas have a transition to squamous cell carcinoma, and this is thought to occur in approximately 10% of inverting papillomas. Um, Again, there is a, a controversial role of HPV in some of these tumors. When you test for it, it's present in many tumors, but it's also present in tumors that turn malignant in those that stay benign. So we don't routinely test for this in, in all cases. Mucosal melanoma we'll touch on. This is an extremely aggressive malignancy uh, that is, tends to be much more aggressive than the skin equivalent. This tumor is much more inclined to metastasize at distant sites rather than lymph nodes in the neck. As a matter of fact, when you look at data we've published, about 10% of patients, when they present with a sinusal mucosal melanoma, will have distant metastases, while only about 5 to 8% will have regional nodal metastases. This often appears as a darkly pigmented lesion in the nasal cavity. And again, there are several different subtypes of cells that can comprise this tumor. There are uh, spindle cells, uh, plasma cells, and epithelioid cells as well, which are typically arranged in sort of a sheet-like configuration. 
and these oftentimes stain positive for S100 and HMB45. And the last specific one we'll, we'll, we'll touch on here in this pathophysiology section is SNEC and SNUC. And again, those are neuroendocrine tumors. Some SNECs were historically called small cell tumors or oat cell tumors, but more commonly now we call them cytonasal neuroendocrine carcinoma. These are a fairly heterogeneous group of malignant neoplasms that are characterized by a monotonous population of fairly undifferentiated tumor cells with relatively small-sized nuclei and very scant cytoplasm. These are somewhat differentiated from esthesioneuroblastoma because they tend to be more epithelial in origin than esthesio, which of course arise from the olfactory fila in cells. Um, SNEC is a term that is generally defined by more well or moderately differentiated uh, neuroendocrine cells, while SNUC is very poorly differentiated or undifferentiated uh, cells. The next question I wanted to ask is more about our natural history of the disease. I think it's safe to say that cyanonasal malignancy, if left untreated, uh, will eventually metastasize and can lead uh, to a very poor prognosis. But I also imagine that some of these patients, as you mentioned, have a median age of around 62. They might be older in age. They might have other comorbidities. Uh, so what happens if, if these tumors go untreated? And I think a more specific question is, how do you counsel patients who after diagnosis might decide they just don't want to do anything about it? Those are very good questions, and I think a lot of nuance and discussion uh, will happen there. And we'll touch, a bit of, uh, I'll touch on a bit of that when we get to the treatment section as well. I'll, for, I'll answer the first question first, and that is, what is the natural history of these tumors? If, if you left, leave them untreated, what happens? The, the short answer is there is a lot of local destruction and local morbidity for the majority of these tumors. As one can imagine, these grow in a very uh, important uh, anatomic area, high real estate, uh, as we call it. And they typically will cause uh, numerous symptoms, including those related to the nasal cavity, as well as the orbits and the cranial base. So local destruction, including uh, invasion of the brain parenchyma, dura, uh, diminished cranial nerve function, and orbital symptoms are fairly common if left uh, untreated. And as you mentioned, the majority of these will also eventually metastasize either to the neck or to distant sites. Uh, and that, of course, is, is the way that many patients will end up uh, succumbing to these tumors in some scenarios. Now, the nuanced question you asked second is, what about some patients perhaps who are very elderly or who have other comorbidities, and, and how do you counsel them? And I think this is a very nuanced discussion, which we typically have in a multidisciplinary tumor board setting with significant uh, involvement from the patient as well. In many of these tumors, uh, an elderly patient may not wish to have an aggressive surgery and may prefer things like palliative chemotherapy or radiotherapy in some scenarios. And this can certainly be arranged for some of these patients uh, who do not wish to undergo a major surgery. And next, moving on to workup, um, when you see these patients, maybe you've already gotten a biopsy-proven uh, malignancy. What goes on in your workup? To start, do you perform any particular labs? It's a very good question. I think for most of these patients, unless they have significant comorbidities which require a general laboratory workup, uh, lab testing is not a significant component of the workup for most patients. The most important aspect of the workup is certainly imaging, and we spend a lot of time both obtaining imaging and reviewing it thoroughly. For most patients, the original study is a CT scan, and oftentimes they have already had this done when they come to see you because a CT scan is obtained for most lesions that involve the nasal cavity. CT scans are, of course, very good for uh, assessment of bone and bony destruction, hyperostosis, and those kind of things. And th the nuances or the challenges are what soft tissue involvement is there when things like the medial wall of the orbit has been eroded, how much of the actual intraorbital contents are involved, or the intracranial contents as well. 
It's also difficult to tell whether in a pacified sinus is simply obstructed in his post-obstructive secretions versus actual direct tumor involvement. So typically, once a CT scan is completed, our next step will be an MRI scan. And I would characterize this as, as essentially required for most malignancies in the sinusal cavity. This is very good for assessing for extent of disease as well as involvement in surrounding structures. It's especially good, as I mentioned earlier, for uh, looking at things like the orbit, the intraorbital contents, the periorbita, extraocular muscles as well, and then dura and intracranial extent of disease. As a resident, I find it hard to evaluate MRIs and look at the nuances of what uh, we really need to evaluate in terms of adjacent structures that are involved in differentiating what's post-obstructive to what's tumor. Can you touch a little bit on the nuances of how you evaluate these MRI scans and maybe what some pearls are for those of us who are trying to dive into these scans and figure out exactly what's going on? I'd be happy to. The first thing I'll mention is that at your own institution, there may be some very uh, nuanced sequences in which they obtain, but I'll stick to the general terminology, including T1, T2, and post-GAD, just to sort of keep things relatively simple and consistent for all listeners. The, the Probably the most important scan, the one we look at mostly, is the T1 post-gadolinium scans. And what this, of course, shows is hyperintensity for the most part where tumor is involved. And this also helps to differentiate post-obstructive sinuses from actual tumor involvement. In a post-obstructive sinus, uh, the mucosa tends to have some hyperintensity, while the intervening uh, opacified area has hypointensity, relatively speaking, from those incipated secretions, whereas the tumor, of course, has a lot of hyperintensity. I think that T2 coronal sequences are very important and good for looking at cranial nerves. I tend to use T2 sequences for looking at things like the vidian nerve, as well as V2 through foramen rotundum, and things like the optic nerve as well. They can be very helpful for looking at uh, perineural invasion and in increased size of nerves in those area, in those areas, excuse me, especially when paired with the T1 post-GAD sequences. I also think that um, T1 post-GAD with and without fat suppression is very good for looking at areas of the pterygopalatine fossa, especially in axial sequences, look for involvement of the uh, fat pad there and potentially width expansion. I also look at that same sequence to look for things like uh, orbital involvement. It can be quite nuanced to determine whether a tumor is simply involving periorbita or up to periorbita versus through periorbita involving uh, intraconal fat or, or extraocular muscles as well. I think looking at the T1 post-GAD coronal images compared to the T1 with fat suppression coronal images is very helpful in that area. And the last one I think that I'll mention is it's also very important to look at the greater palatine nerves and extension of the palate. And for those, I really like, um, again, the axial T1 post-GAD images, as well as the axial uh, T2 images. And uh, we've discussed now how to assess the primary tumor, but when do you decide to get imaging lower down, maybe in the neck or even the chest? Yeah, this is a, a very good question. Um, in our practice here, we tend to obtain a PET-CT scan for, relatively speaking, all sinusal malignancies. A good argument could also be made for obtaining a CT neck of, and chest to look at those areas as well. Uh, but the short answer is we essentially obtain it for all of these malignancies. Now, you could make an argument that uh, for perhaps very low stage or lower grade malignancies, maybe the full staging workup is not necessary. But in general terms, we tend to obtain these for nearly all patients. I next wanted to move on to staging. 
could you briefly tell us about the staging of tumors in the sinonasal cavity? I know uh, we're kind of focusing on squamous cell carcinoma and SNEC and SNUC, but there are also some, some specifics to mucosal melanoma. Do you mind telling us about that? Sure. In th- these staging systems I'll, I'll mention, we, we certainly, it's important to know about them. We tend to not use them extremely uh, commonly in clinical care because there are other things to think about as far as tumor resection and staging goes. But the first thing that's important to know is that there is a TNM staging system for tumors specific to the maxillary sinus and those confined to the nasal cavity and ethmoid sinus. For whatever reason, there's not specific ones for the frontal or the sphenoid sinuses, but these ones there certainly is. And then I'll mention lastly that there is a specific staging system for mucosal melanoma, and we'll get to that third. So the first one is maxillary sinus malignancies. This follows the typical TNM staging system for uh, T1 to T2, T3, T4A, and T4B. And I'll go through this quickly, but in general, T1 uh, tumors are those simply limited to the mucosa uh, of the sinus without any erosion or bony destruction around them. Those are pretty uncommon. T2 are those in the maxillary sinus that, you know, sort of erode some bone surrounding the area. T3 is then extension into uh, subcutaneous tissues, uh, the medial wall of the orbit, pterygoid fossa, etc. Then T4A are what's considered localized, local advanced disease, and this may include extension into the orbital contents, the skin of the cheek or the pterygoid plates, or even more posterior to the infratemporal fossa. And then T4B would be considered very advanced disease, including uh, the brain, uh, extension cranial nerves other than V2, nasopharynx, clivus, etc. Now, there is some nuance here. Um, it was, we'll get to a little bit. We'll talk about the nasal cavity and ethmoid sinus as well, because with more modern imaging and techniques, again, some of these things may be a little bit more nuanced, such as dural involvement or those kind of things, may not, at least in our mind, necessarily designate a T4B tumor in some scenarios. Again, the second staging is that uh, those tumors confined to the nasal cavity and ethmoid sinus. T1 are those uh, confined to quote unquote one subsite without significant bony invasion. T2 are invading uh, two subsites, so the primary area, and ad- area immediately adjacent to it. T3 would be involving uh, the medial wall or the floor of the orbit or the maxillary sinus or cribriform plate. T4A is again moderately advanced local disease involving things like the actual orbital contents, uh, skin, or the anterior cranial fossa. And then T4B would be very advanced disease involving things like the orbital apex, dura, brain, middle cranial fossa, uh, or nerves other than V2. Now again, there's some nuance here. When we think of perhaps an esthesioneuroblastoma involving nasal cavity, if it would involve dura, that would automatically make it a T4B tumor. However, the vast majority of esthesioneuroblastomas do directly involve dura because of its location. And of course, in those scenarios, we typically... Uh, refer to the Kadish staging system, which is covered in more detail in the esthesioneuroblastoma episode. And the last one I'll go through uh, for local staging, again, just because it's nuanced, is that for sinasal mucosal melanoma. And this is the same staging for mucosal melanoma of all head and, ne- head and neck sites. The important thing to know is that this staging for T-stage starts at T3. So any mucosal melanoma at baseline is considered a T3 involving any mucosal site. It's then T4A would involve some sort of other deeper soft tissues, cartilage or bone, and then T4B when it involves brain, dura, skull base, cranial nerves, et cetera. So again, due to the severity and very poor prognosis of this disease, its staging automatically starts higher. And the last thing I'll mention is that the, the nodal staging in, in general, especially for maxillary sinus and nasal cavity and ethmoid sinus, closely mirrors that of other sites in the head and neck region. I now want to talk about treatment and eventually outcomes with these different types of pathologies. Uh, 
so to start, when you're considering uh, the surgical approach or, or treatment algorithm for a patient with cyanonasal malignancy, uh, where do you start? Uh, what are your goals? This is a, a great question, and I'll answer this in some nuances of different pathologies, but the overall goal for these patients, if you're considering them for surgery, is to clear surgical margins, and that's the most important aspect. Uh, in general, there's a need for good frozen section pathology for these because you hate to have a frozen section turn positive later on, need to go back for these very challenging uh, resections. In, in general terms, the surgical approach that you want to initiate is dictated by the tumor. And again, the, the most important thing is obtaining negative margins, and whatever it takes to obtain that is what the proper approach is for that patient. For some patients, this can be a purely endoscopic approach. There's been uh, very good data to show that uh, for similar stage tumors, endoscopic approaches have very favorable outcomes compared to open approaches for the vast majority of patients and may have shorter hospital stays, and in some cases, maybe even uh, better outcomes. However, that's for tumors that you can confidently clear with negative margins endoscopically. There are some cases where you need an endoscopic approach to an open approach. We oftentimes will do this for our uh, craniofacial resections. We'll do these from above with an endoscopic approach when needed, and we can't do them purely endoscopically. And lastly, there is uh, still a role for purely open approaches, uh, mid-facial degloving procedures, uh, open craniofacial resections, et cetera, for patients who truly need that for a negative margin resection. Now, I get asked a lot about endoscopic approaches and what sort of things are appropriate for that. And endoscopic approaches alone can certainly be uh, considered for many tumors that are smaller or lower stages with favorable histology, but can also be approached for many uh, higher stage tumors when they can be resected endoscopically. As I mentioned earlier, uh, tumors in the ethmoid cavity or nasal cavity by involving dura are automatically considered T4B. Yet for many of these patients, we can reliably perform an endoscopic cranial-based resection with good reconstruction and have a complete negative margin resection with an endoscopic approach. So again, there are nuances to what we can approach endoscopically uh, for, for many of these patients. I'll also mention management of the orbit because this is a bit controversial and has uh, a lot of different nuances. We oftentimes will consider orbital involvement of malignancies in the nose to grade one, two, and three. Grade one is some medial destruction of the orbital wall. Grade two is involvement of the periorbita. And then grade three is actual intraconeal involvement or involvement of the extraocular muscles. And I think for most people, if they're going to uh, approach a tumor surgically and there is grade three involvement, the majority of us will recommend an orbital exoneration for a true negative margin resection. For grade one involvement, we can often manage this with, res with resection of the lamina and periorbita uh, with interoperative sampling of the orbital fat to see whether there is actually tumor there or not. And then grade two is sort of in that intermediate gray zone. But this, of course, requires an extensive conversation with the patient preoperatively in regards to the optimal management of that patient and what they're willing to accept from a morbidity standpoint. And the last question that's often involved is, is, is there a rule for on-block resection of these tumors? Now, although historically this was considered in some patients, this has been shown uh, many times over and over that uh, for most of these patients, we do not need on-block resection. That again, the goal of surgery and what gives them the best outcome is a true negative margin resection. And when you're evaluating a patient or specifically looking at the scan, tumor involvement, uh, what are some of the limitations that, that really keep you from thinking about doing a fully endoscopic procedure? This is a great question, and, and I'll go through some of these because this is a really important thing to think about from a preoperative imaging standpoint. Certainly, if there's a soft tissue involvement of the skin or something along the face, that, of course, is not, not very uh, amenable to an endoscopic approach. And similarly, uh, palate involvement directly will likely require an open maxillectomy and not a purely uh, endoscopic approach. 
When there is high involvement in the frontal sinus, or as have we seen uh, many times over, is extension of the dura along the posterior table of the frontal sinus, that is a difficult area to confidently resect endoscopically with margins and also reconstruct. So we oftentimes will think about an open approach for um, high frontal sinus involvement or involvement of dura high along the posterior table of the frontal sinus. It's very difficult to access tumors that involve dura high and lateral over the orbit. So that's an important area to look at as well. And then, of course, I mentioned earlier, there are some challenging areas to consider whether or not a purely endoscopic approach is best in the hands uh, that you're comfortable with. And that's, again, involvement of the orbit and the extent of orbit involvement, as well as the extent of intracranial involvement, and your confidence in obtaining a negative margin resection there, as well as your confidence in reconstructing that area to prevent postoperative CSF leak. And next, I wanted to move on more specifically to uh, different pathologies. Could you tell us some more of the specifics about how you approach squamous cell carcinoma and adenocarcinoma uh, in terms of treatment and surgical resection? Yes, I'd be happy to. And we'll sort of lump squamous cell carcinoma and adenocarcinoma together here because they're widely considered to be the two most common malignancies in the nose. And in general, uh, their surgical management is pretty similar. Although squamous cell carcinoma more commonly arises in the maxillary sinus and adenocarcinoma may more commonly arise in the nasal cavity or the nasal vault or ethmoid sinus, again, the overall management is pretty similar. We like to have a negative margin resection of these tumors as first-line treatment uh, when at all possible. And they oftentimes will also get adjuvant radiotherapy, again, typically because they're uh, presenting with advanced disease. Now, if you have a very small tumor that you resect confidently with negative margins, you could consider observing them long-term and withholding adjuvant therapy. But for the majority of patients, it will likely be recommended to get adjuvant radiotherapy. We typically reserve chemotherapy uh, for worrisome prognostic features, including perineural invasion or lymphovascular spread, or of course, if you attempt a resection with positive margins, although uh, that's not the goal of surgery, uh, we certainly would recommend chemotherapy for those patients. And this is typically some sort of platinum-based chemotherapy for the majority of these patients. Now, manage of the neck is also a bit controversial, and, and each institution may handle this differently. There are higher rates of neck metastases for squamous cell carcinoma compared to other histopathologies, although even with squamous cell carcinoma, the, the chance of a neck metastasis at the time of diagnosis is typically in the neighborhood of 10 to 20%. So in our institution, we do not generally recommend an elective neck dissection for a clinically N0 neck. That's also true for adenocarcinoma. So in general, uh, we do not recommend standard elective neck dissection, although there can be some discussion about if the patient's going to get adjuvant radiotherapy, whether or not you include uh, a clinically N0 neck in that field or not. And that's best left to a tumor board discussion in your particular institution. In general, from a prognosis standpoint, uh, with a negative margin surgery, with appropriate uh, adjuvant radiotherapy in select cases, the overall five-year survival for squamous cell carcinoma and adenocarcinoma is roughly in the neighborhood of 50 to 60%. And now moving on to mucosal melanoma, could you tell us uh, more, some more details about that? Mucosal melanoma is a, is a bad player. It's an ugly tumor with very poor overall long-term prognosis. Um, with data we, that we've shown, the overall five-year survival is somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 30%, and uh, disease-specific survival is, again, in a similar neighborhood. When you look specifically at patients who have positive neck nodes at diagnosis, the two-year survival is 11%, and the five-year survival is less than 4%. So again, this is a tumor that we think about very specifically because it's an overall uh, very bad player. 
Um, when we look at when these patients present, about 8% of so of patients will have some neck metastases at the time of diagnosis. However, about 11% of them will also have distant metastases. So again, distant metastases may be more common in this tumor than localized metastases, as you may think about with squamous cell carcinoma or adenocarcinoma. We've also shown us some data that things like advanced stage, uh, certain sites, as well as nododes and metastases, all are negative predictors overall uh, for, for long-term survival. Uh, if a tumor is confined to the nasal cavity and you are stuck with negative margins and does not have any nodal distance spread, of course, those are positive predictors. Treatment uh, approach to these patients is pretty nuanced, and we usually will talk about them in a multidisciplinary tumor board setting. If it is surgically resectable, we would like to resect them uh, up front with negative margins. And then the question about uh, these tumors oftentimes is radiotherapy uh, indicated. In many studies, there has been shown to be an improved local control with radiation therapy, but it has not been shown to be an overall survival to date with radiation therapy for mucosal melanoma. Chemotherapy, we, we do not recommend very commonly for these tumors. However, immunotherapy is a very relevant treatment topic, an area we have a lot of interest in. And these patients may, in fact, get adjuvant immunotherapy, or in some cases for very advanced disease or unresectable disease, we may treat them with induction immunotherapy followed by potentially surgical resection or definitive uh, radiation therapy. Uh, the typical agents that may be selected for immunotherapy in these patients include pembrolizumab, ipilimumab, and nivolumab. And finally, moving on to our SNEC and SNUC tumors, can you tell us a few more details about those? This is a pretty nuanced uh, tumor set, and it's really specific in many cases to the sinasal cavity. The treatment approach here is probably less well agreed upon than things like squamous cell carcinoma or adenocarcinoma. In general, if these patients present with a localized tumor that you can resect, we do like to resect these surgically when at all possible. However, when you look at snuck tumors, for instance, um, large studies of, of many sites have shown that only 6% of tumors present with a T1 or T2 tumor. So these are typically presenting with very advanced stage. Um, induction chemotherapy may be selected in many of these scenarios or some form of induction chemotherapy followed by radiation therapy. However, in general, if we, like, if we can see them and they are surgically resectable up front, we do like to approach that in many scenarios. Again, the, the overall survival of these are, are pretty dismal. Uh, for many of the SNEC tumors, the overall five-year survival is somewhere between 40 and 70%, and SNUCs is probably more like 30 to 40% uh, overall. So again, these, these, are, these are bad players overall. We've gone more and more to approach to consider induction chemotherapy for these patients. If they respond well, they may go on to consolidation, chemo, and radiotherapy. However, they don't respond and we can resect them surgically, uh, then perhaps we go into surgical therapy for many of these patients. Again, a pretty nuanced approach with, a, with an overall poor, poorly behaving tumor for many of these scenarios. And when we think about following treatment of these patients, specifically those who have been surgically resected, how do you follow up with these patients? Do you uh, perform regular imaging or simply nasal endoscopy? So I think that all these patients do deserve routine imaging like any other malignancy of the head and neck region. In our practice for most of these, we'll obtain some sort of imaging study beginning roughly uh, two to three months following their uh, final therapy. For the first year or so, we may get them every three to four months and then space them out from there if they're doing well to perhaps every six months or eventually maybe even on annual basis if they're beyond five years. We typically pair this with a thorough endoscopic nasal exam for most cases, as well as a thorough neck exam for all these patients, uh, which really help to pick up on early recurrences if they would happen, maybe even earlier than uh, an imaging study would. But of course, uh, PET CT scans and imaging studies are also important because things like esthesioneuroblastoma may have late 
neck disease or distant metastases, as well as, of course, mucosal melanoma, SNUX, SNEC, et cetera. And imaging studies are very important for those patients long-term. Well, Dr. Toby, this has been a great discussion about cyanonasal malignancy. Before I move on to our summary, is there anything else you'd like to add about this topic? I'd like to add that these tumors involve a lot of very uh, important experts in their care. So the majority of these patients are discussed in a tumor board setting and may be treated by several people, uh, including folks like myself who practice uh, rhinology and skull-based surgery, as well as my colleagues in head-neck oncologic surgery, uh, as well as, of course, our radiation therapy colleagues, our medical oncology colleagues, as well as perhaps specialized people in uh, melanoma, et cetera. I also mentioned that uh, pathology is very important here. It's very important to have expert pathologists because the pathologic diagnosis of these is also uh, many times very nuanced. Then, of course, our colleagues in neurosurgery and oculoplastic surgery also play a very strong role for many of these patients as they need combined surgeries uh, by our services. I'll also mention that uh, surgery and intervention of these patients may induce a fair bit of long-term morbidity. So it's important to have a discussion up front as well as helping to manage that morbidity long-term with uh, regular endoscopies, debridements, and perhaps surgeries down the road for things like uh, you know, scarred lacrimal systems. Many patients require DCRs uh, or other you know, uh, lysis adhesions, et cetera, to help breathing long-term, as well as things like olfaction and uh, gustation long-term as well. Thank you so much. Uh, I'll now move on to our summary. Uh, patients with cyanonasal malignancy often present with nasal obstruction and possible epistaxis but of course can and often present with more advanced disease and you should be looking for things like proptosis and cranial nerve involvement among other things. This is a diverse group of tumors that can be found within the sinonasal cavity and it can include origins of epithelium, neuroendocrine origin, cartilaginous, bony, and other origins. In general, the severity of prognosis can be separated into three tiers, with the worst being high-grade esthesioneuroblastoma, sinonasal mucosal melanoma, and SNEC and SNUC tumors. Squamous cell carcinoma falls more into the second tier of severity and is the most common sinonasal malignancy. Generally, workup includes biopsy for diagnosis, which can be performed in the office if it's a safe situation, and additional workup includes CT and MRI. Of course, the CT is to evaluate bony involvement and MRI to evaluate extent of tumor, invasion of surrounding soft tissue structures, and also differentiating post-obstruction. In approaching treatment, you need to consider the T-staging and the surrounding structures, which will inform what type of resection can be used and if this can be a purely endoscopic approach. And the goals of surgery should generally be negative margin resection. Prognosis and outcomes vary depending on the tumor pathology as well as tumor staging, including metastasis. And of course, consideration for treatment and adjuvant therapy should be a team discussion with medical oncology, radiation oncology, and other experts. Dr. Choby, anything else to add? No, I think that's all. I'll just remind our listeners, we do have some other dedicated episodes to esthesioneuroblastoma, as well as chordoma, chondrosarcoma, and skull-based reconstruction, which they can certainly refer to. They want more, more details on those specific things. Perfect. Thank you so much. I'll now move on to the question-asking portion of our time together. As a reminder, I'll ask a question, pause for a few seconds to give you time to think about it, and then give the answer. So for our first question, what is the most common symptom of a sinonasal malignancy? So the most common presenting symptom is obstruction and possibly epistaxis, but remember that you need to evaluate for other symptoms such as cranial nerve involvement and proptosis. For our second question, what is the most common sinonasal malignancy? 
Squamous cell carcinoma is the most common sinonasal malignancy, accounting for up to 50% of sinonasal malignancies. But remember, this does not include benign tumors. For our next question, briefly review the T-staging of sinonasal mucosal melanoma. Recall that the staging here begins at T3, so any presence of disease makes the tumor a T3 tumor. Involvement deeper to the mucosa makes it a T4 tumor, so this would be involvement of deeper soft tissue or other surrounding structures. And for our final question, briefly discuss the approach to treatment in sinonasal malignancy. In general, it's best to perform margin-negative resection with consideration of adjuvant therapy, usually radiation therapy. Chemotherapy can be considered, and of course, using a multi-specialty team approach is most beneficial. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.